Welcome to Sculpture Vulture. I'm Lucy Branch, a sculptural conservator and author, bringing you a series of interviews with some amazing sculptors who inspire me and I hope will do the same for you. You can see the photographs accompanying the interview, the episode show notes and get a free novel from sculpturevulture.co.uk. Hello Sculpture Vultures, it's great to have you here with me today for this final episode in the first season. I'm going to start by giving some warm thanks to all the sculptors that have taken part and going to pick one or two out in particular. Amy Goodman, Hugh Chapman, Rodney Monday, who have all written to me telling me about the lovely people who've contacted them as a result of their interviews and going to mention Rodney Monday again who's gobbled up all my books very kindly and has regularly stayed in touch with me with lovely emails and videos of his work. I also wanted to thank you my audience and particularly if you've been someone who's contacted me about the show just to tell me that you've enjoyed it or that you've thought there was something interesting about it and I'm going to give a particular shout out to a few people. Adam Padden, Foundry Manager at Sculpture Castings Limited in Basingstoke. Ben Broadbent, who's a fine artist making contemporary figurative sculpture in the Gloucestershire area. And Billy Bond, who's a sculptor and designer and member of the Royal Society of Sculptors. They all took the trouble to write to me, have got incredibly interesting pages if you like sculpture on Instagram, and I'd really encourage you to have a look at them. I'll be taking a little break after this season, mainly just to concentrate on getting out my next novel, Restoration Murder, which, as you heard in the last episode, should have been out at the end of last year. But this is the first novel I've written which sculpture doesn't feature in. Oh, shock horror! This one is inspired by the Cheapside Hoard, which... I don't know if you know, was discovered in 1917 under the floorboards of a building in Cheapside. Now, if you haven't ever come across it, please take a look, Google it, because some of the collection is, it's sculpture in my opinion, but just with a lot more gemstones. And it's just so beautiful. And I came across it because I was working on the Aldersgate Flame, which is a fantastic monument just outside the Museum of London and uh, was lucky enough that the Cheapside Hoard was on display at the time and so during my lunch break I nipped in to have a good look round and no one knows why it was left behind in Cheapside and, and no one ever came forward to claim it. Well if that's not fodder for a really good murder mystery I really don't know what is and so I just had to start a new series. <laughs> that's what I did. I left my primary series which is the one that's always got uh, sculpture as the object significant and um, I had to veer to one side and begin a murder mystery series, which is going to be have a life of its own, I hope. I'd really love your opinion about whether I should carry on with another season in the same format or whether you'd be interested in some spice and variety, maybe some sculpture news and chat about the topical features that are going on in sculpture right now. Or would you like to hear a little bit about what I'm up to in my sculptural conservation work? I can tell you, I have got some fantastic projects this year. Please God, with a little bit of luck, they will stay going forward because of the 
madness of the pandemics. But um, we'll be starting off with Alexandra of Tunis at Wellington Barracks by the fantastic sculptor James Butler. And that one's located just a stone's throw from Buckingham Palace. I was going to have a crack at inviting him onto the show. We can see whether he's got time for us or not. Can't be sure when you're such an important person. But please tell me which aspects of the show you've enjoyed the most during the interviews. Is it the creative parts about how they're getting their ideas and um, material for their work? Or is it more about being the business of being a sculptor that makes your ears prick up? From my perspective, although I'm not a sculptor, of course, but I do work and run a creative business and I feel like the one without the other is an impossible thing. But I could do some deep dives into particular themes if there was an appetite for that just let me know with any opinion hopefully good but if not i'll take the criticism on the chin lucy at antiquebronze.co.uk or you can message me on instagram or twitter i'm i'm everywhere so anyway enough chat from me right now let's get on with the show Philip Jackson is an award-winning, prolific sculptor who has created some of the most well-known and well-loved public sculptures, particularly in the UK, but also elsewhere in the world. And it includes the Bomber Command in Green Park, Bobby Moore at Wembley Stadium, the Manchester United Trinity sculpture, the Jersey Liberation sculpture, just to name a few. And there are so many (laughs) that I could spend all day naming them. But his creativity seems to know no bounds, as does his extraordinary amount of private work and exhibitions. And in that work, he shows an entirely different side to his creativity. His distinctive Venice-inspired sculptures are brooding and ominous. And for me, who loves the dark side of art, just endlessly fascinating. Today, I began our discussion with my favourite question. Have you always being creative? I think I probably have, yes. I mean, uh, I, I sort of de- decided to be a sculptor at the age of 11. So uh, I suppose you could say that's uh, for a very long time. And so was it someone at home that encouraged that or school? No, I went to boarding school very early. Uh, my parents were in West Africa. My father was in the colonial service. And so I used to go out to Africa every summer, but in the Christmas and Easter holidays, I would be farmed out to my uh, grandmother or my great aunt. Uh, They were quite elderly, so I had to sort of, as it were, find my own amusement. But they did have very good libraries of books, and so I I sort of spent quite a lot of time reading. And I discovered Greco-Roman sculpture, and I thought it was the most extraordinary thing. Um, that people, you know, that, that these wonderful things could be made by the hand of man. And, um, and then I think at the age of 11, I, I bought what, what was, I think, probably my first book, which was a second-hand book on sculpture that was being done by people that were actually still alive. So I suppose the penny dropped that, you know, this wonderful thing called sculpture had been done since Greco-Roman times and before, right up to the present time. And I thought, well, you know, that's what I want to do. So I suppose that's really how it came about. Right. Did you then start to pursue it more? Yes. I mean, my school really didn't teach art in the way that schools teach art these days. And so I sort of ploughed a a fairly lonely furrow to try and find out how you carve things, how you model things and all that sort of thing. And then at the appropriate age, I, I was staying with my great aunt and I 
I said to her, look, you know, I think I want to go to art school. And so I, I sort of went for an interview and everything and got in. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's sort of gone from there. Were they pleased at home to hear that you wanted to go to art school or would they have much rather you had a different profession? Well, I don't suppose it's the one they would have chosen for me. But I think that at that stage, I was showing some sort of ability hmm. in uh, drawing and doing things like that. So I, I think they probably felt that it was uh, something that I had a, a natural leaning towards. So, and my parents were in, in West Africa and, and in, a, in a way were sort of out of the decision-making process. Uh, so um, that's how it came about. My, my great aunt, I have to say, was a, a very formidable woman. And I'm not sure that the principal of the art school that I went to uh, was particularly keen on having me. But my great aunt, who made uh, Lady Worthington in The Importance of Being Earnest, look quite tame. Um, no was not a word that featured in her vocabulary. So I found myself in art school, uh, I have to say, probably much to uh, her credit. Right. Well, you always do need a cheerleader behind you, I think. I think yeah, um, sometimes we're a little bit slow to come forward. So it's especially when you're quite you know, nervous about your abilities at that at the beginning of yes. life. And which art school was it? I went to Farnham. Okay. Many years ago. It's changed into something rather grand. I think it's the, the West Surrey College of Art and Design or something. But in those days, it was just Farnham Art School. And it was a general course or sculpture specifically? Well, it was general to begin with. And then you, you specialised in your chosen subject. And mine was always sculpture. I mean, I, I really... Uh, didn't feel particularly simpatico with painting or any of the other things. I just wanted to do sculpture. Mm -hmm. So I, I was fairly sort of single-minded about it. And and so when did it become a job? When did you? When was that first commission or, or payday for your work? It's interesting you should ask that because one of the things I realised at art school is that most of the people that I was there with went into teaching. And the last thing I wanted to do was to go into teaching. I really wanted to do the thing. And so I sort of uh, sort of wondered, you know, what sculptor, sculptor students actually became. Because if you were a doctor, you were a medical student, and then you became a sort of junior houseman and all that sort of thing. If you were in, a, in the legal business, there was the same sort of uh, ladder up which you climbed. But with, with uh, sculptors, you seem to climb a ladder and then fall off the top. Um, and... So I made a sort of decision that actually, if you were going around to see people about doing a commission or doing a job or whatever it was, you couldn't actually lug a large piece of stone or a bronze around with you. So you had to um, take photographs. And so I learned how to take photographs and I sort of learned how to take photographs well so that there's no point in doing a good sculpture and taking a bad photograph of it. Uh, so uh, I learned how to do photography. And so when I left art school, I, funnily enough, got a job as a photographer and sort of went around and did stories about various people and various things in the, in the I think it was the Surrey area. And one of the uh, people I did a story about was actually a, a, a commercial art studio. And uh, I did the story and then I said to them, look, do you happen to need a sculptor? And they said, yes, they did. And so I gave up photography and took up 
um, a job as a sculptor. So that's how it started, really. Um, so I, I, I worked with the company for about 14 years and became the managing director eventually. Okay, um, so it was it was actually a proper job with employment. Um, oh yes, because that's yeah. that's not always common with uh, with uh, no, creative no, industry. No. I mean, we did a lot of work overseas in in sort of places like Africa and Saudi Arabia and uh, the Far East and everything. So I got quite a bit of experience in that sort of thing, mm. um, and that's when I eventually left and set up my own studio. Uh, that's where we uh, looked for work. Okay. Um, in those parts of the world. Um, and of course, it, because there's oil money and everything, they had the money to pay for sort of quite large pieces of sculpture and you know decorative works. Yeah. Well, actually, though, you were talking about the photography of sculpture. I mean, actually, particularly photographing bronze, that's a real art because... It is, it, yes. And um, people don't always... Th- understand that but particularly if you have a large piece and it's outdoors you know it it just can look black whatever you do um, you have to be very good with controlling the light and managing to get the angle to actually say what what it is I I agree with you I mean a a lot of the sort of work that I show I show it while it's in its clay state because I think the clay reads better in a photograph than the bronze does yes I think you're right actually it's it's a little bit more forgiving as a material and so do you have a creative practice do you have a routine to your day well i mean as you know uh, sculpture gets done because you put the hours in um and so i try to start at sort of nine o'clock and i finish at about six or seven in the evening um with uh, an hour off for lunch and so you know you, you do have to put those hours in and i sort of work a normal week if the job requires it, then obviously I'll work later or over the weekend. But uh, I try to plan things that they, that doesn't happen too often these days. I, I suspected that you probably had. I mean, that's quite a long day to create. I mean, or, I mean, it would drain, I think, uh, most people. <laughs> um, well, that kind of no, because it's not the same as emails and things like that. And and not saying that. Um, administration isn't isn't hard work because it certainly is but there is a lot you're giving a lot of yourself into something that's creative so that's quite a long period so it's no wonder you have such a a huge amount of work I mean you're you really are prolific I suppose compared with some people I am yes I, I work fairly consistently and fast I suppose and uh yeah I yes you're probably right yeah, and so do you have time in your day at all to sort of feed the ideas that you have to come up with? Because I know that you have sort of two, you have more than one aspect to your work. Some of it is public commission, yes. but which obviously must have more of a remit. But there's an awful lot of imagination that has to come into that. I mean, with sculpture, and I suppose it's true of other arts as well, there's a lot of work which is not exactly hack work, but you go on to automatic pilot. If you're doing a a sort of nine-foot figure, you're not thinking intimately about every square inch of it. A lot of it is just sort of building up the bulk of it. Uh, I mean, obviously, you are thinking about what you're doing, but your mind can also wander onto other things. And so while I'm working on, on, say, a a public sculpture uh, where there's a lot of sort of building up and that sort of Thing, I'm probably thinking about some piece of gallery sculpture that, that's sort of developing in my mind. 
Um, and, and those gallery sculptures are probably inspired by things that I've seen, uh, music, theater, opera, great buildings, you know, wonderful landscape, a lo lovely location, all those sort of things, or a story or something that I'm reading. So uh, ideas come and, and sort of I, I think about them. If I think the, if I, I think the ideas worth pursuing, then I will probably start doing little wax maquettes, probably no more than about sort of 10, 15 minutes spent on each one. And I'll sort of see whether it, 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 it's an idea that's going to work or not. Um, and then if it, it is, uh, I'll take it to the next stage, which is to sort of do a, a, a sort of all singing, all dancing maquette. And then if that works, then I'll take it up bigger. So that, that's the sort of process that I would generally go through. I love this. I love the the idea of the multitasking sort of because you did, there are um, phases. I mean, I write, and um, one of the things that I find is that in the it's quite therapeutic to be moving your hands in some way, um, and your mind. I, I'm not someone who listens to anything when I'm working, so it's very silent and. It, it sort of the ideas do trickle better when I seem to be doing something else. So even though it, it isn't necessarily for that direct uh, thing that I'm doing at that moment, so yes. a meditative. I, mean, <laughs> I, I do listen to quite a lot of music when I'm working. I, I, I work in my studio on my own. We've got other people in the building doing various things to do with the sculpture. But I my studio is pretty much... Um, me only. So I, I play music and I find that the music will often alter the sculpture that I'm doing. You know, if you get some great operatic aria going, it's sort of somehow the sort of magic of it, the rhythm, the beauty of it sort of gets instilled into the sculpture, or it should do anyway. Yeah. I have to ask you about your um, beautiful Venetian-inspired figures because um, they're not. I've never worked on one of them, but I'm hugely admiring because I'm. I lived in Venice for a little while, oh, right. and, yes. uh, <clears throat> and I don't think anyone who has ever had contact with Venice is ever the same again. But no. um, they are particularly uh, fascinating to me. I think. Well, they they came about. I mean, I don't know how long ago it is. I'm not very good on timing, but thirty. 35 years ago or so, I was doing a commission for a ship that was being built. Uh, and it was being fitted out in a place called Mestre, which is on the Venice Lagoon, yes. sort of Birkenhead of, of uh, Italy. And I went out there to show the shipwrights how the sculpture should be fitted to the ship. And while I was there, the ship was towed backwards out of Mestre and into the arsenal uh, on Venice itself. And so I saw Venice for the first time from the sea. Uh, and because I was out there on the ship sort of working, uh, I was able to visit the museums and the art galleries. And I sort of came across the paintings of people like uh, Canaletto and Guardi and Longhi and people like that that were painting uh, the Venetian scene of the sort of 17th and 18th century. And their paintings were inhabited by these uh, cloaked and masked figures. And I was intrigued by a sort of, hedonistic city like Venice should actually go in for this particular convention. And of course, it was because the, <clears throat> the sort of rich patrician families who were known to everyone could do anything because they had the money, but they couldn't offend against the social mores of the day. But they could if they put cloaks and hats and masks on because no one knew who they were. So they were then free to have 
affairs with their footmen, you know, carry out vendettas and all that sort of thing. Uh, and that sort of intrigued me. So when I got back from uh, Venice, I started to do a series of figures that were masked. You couldn't see the face. You could only, I, I sort of allowed myself um, hands and I sort of used a sort of, a sort of my contemporary interpretation of the the uh, the Venetian costume, although it, it, in no way does it actually resemble it the way I do it. Um, and I produced a series of sculptures that later became known as the Mask series. And that, in fact, culminated in a, a, a big exhibition in Venice uh, in the Casanova Gardens behind the Cipriani Hotel, which was a, a great success. So that's how that those particular figures came about. Yeah, they, I mean, they really are quite special, I think. <laughs> They're quite, um, they, they needed to be in the world, uh, large yeah. scale. And so could there have been another life? Could you have been something other than a sculptor or would that have to have been, Is was that it? You no, know, I've never really thought about it. I mean, I've always felt that I'm very fortunate in life, that I'm doing what I enjoy doing and um, I have had... Um, a modicum of success doing it. So I, I'm very happy and I don't sort of lust after being a train driver or anything like that. I suppose if it wasn't open to me, I would find something else that I would enjoy doing. Mm. Uh, but I, I've not really given it a great deal of thought. And has there been days where you've thought, this is too hard, it's not working? Has there been things, any moments where you felt like giving up? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, no, not, not not giving up. But I think that some days I go into the studio and everything goes absolutely swimmingly and it goes quickly and swimmingly and it's everything I do seems to be right. And I sort of wish the day could have, you know, 48 hours in it. And there are other days where perhaps you've got something on your mind and you go in and you work on something for sort of three or four hours and you realise actually you haven't progressed it one iota. And... Um, so, but most days are, are productive, but you do have the odd day where, you know, uh, either it goes absolutely swimmingly well uh, or where it really doesn't. Yeah. And have you got a, do you go for a walk or is there is there something that helps you come out of that if you're maybe a bit troubled about something or? Well, I mean, we've got two working cockers who need to be walked every day. So they get a walk every day and uh, that tends to clear the mind. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure that I sort of suffer greatly from... That, well, they call it writer's block, I suppose, with writing. Yes. But there isn't an equivalent, I suppose, for artists. I, I think it probably is, actually. But, but some days, you know, I have a sort of flood of ideas and other days I sort of have to think quite hard about what I should be doing next. And obviously you've come a very long way with your career you've done some incredible incredible public commissions is there is there anything left to conquer now uh, is there a spot you've got your eye on which you'd think that needs a that needs one of my works there well not no particular geographic spot no i mean I, i've got this monument to the emergency services coming up which i hope the, the clients are negotiating a site at the moment so I hope that they'll get something. There's one or two sites that we're looking at which should be rather good. Um, so I hope they'll get one of those. Um, so I'm very happy to do that. I mean, that'll be about two years' work as far as I'm concerned. So, And it's a big bronze. Um, I saw the maquette. Yes, it's, it's a big bronze with six eight-foot figures on it. 
Brilliant. I do so, love the Bomber Command, which is uh, obviously a um, very large group. Um, yes, that's been very popular, actually. Yeah, it's um, it's just a magic. It, we had to do the, just the conservation work when the it was vandalised. Um, yes. And um, it just... It, it's i mean having spent so long with each of those figures it's just it's very special so i think that would be fabulous to have another group uh like yes. that and, um i think the public love it i mean they yes. came from all over the world and had hugely gushing many of them had come several times just to, yes. uh, from far-flung places just to see it again Yes, it's, it's well visited. The other thing that's quite good about it, and which we thought would happen when we started, was that it would change people's attitude towards Bomber Command. Because I think that if you, if before the sculpture, uh, the sculpture was done, um, if you said uh, Bomber Command on to anyone, they would say, "Oh yes, but uh, what about Dresden?" Mm, um, yes. Now, people don't say that anymore. They say. You know, oh, 55,500 young men who gave their lives for the country, which, of course, is exactly what they should say, mm. um, because the, the sacrifice was enormous. Yeah, it really was. And I think that yeah. that was that's right. Actually, I didn't hear anyone with a negative um, response, actually, to the to the monument. Uh, obviously, yeah. there, there must have been, uh, there, there wouldn't have been vandalism there if there wasn't people, but I'm not quite so sure it was so specific to the I, bomber I command I that hit. I don't think that a lot of vandalism is specific to the what the sculpture is about, because I think at the same time they had a go at animals at war and and um, else. it was uh, on Bond Street, the Roosevelt and um, yes. uh, yeah. the the statues that there. So, yes, I think it may yeah. have just been a... I think you just have to look at it as just sheer vandalism. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so yeah. any advice for uh, other creatives on that journey? What does it take to be a professional sculptor? Is it is it all art? Or is there more to it than that? No, I, th I think there's more to it than that. I think that you need to be able to work hard and consistently and you need to uh, persevere. Uh, if you think you've got the ability, you have to just keep going uh, long enough so that other people will see it as well. Don't get despondent if things don't go well immediately. And you need to, you, you need to have a reasonably good sense of business and how things are done right um this you you can't sort of be uh, arty farty and sort of think that you know your talent will um carry you to great you glory <laughs> you you do you do need to be businesslike about it because remember that i mean on the sort of public sculpture front the people that you're dealing with are generally i mean with the bomber command you're dealing with the the Air Force with the Gurkhas, you're dealing with the Army, they, on the whole, don't deal with sort of um, far-out artists. They want to know that they're going to get the job on time. It's going to be to the quality that they want. So you have to project that uh, ability to do something uh, efficiently on time and to a quality that will, you know, knock the spots off, as it were. Yeah. Did you get that, do you think, from that early experience in working for the commercial design firm and art firm? I suppose I, in my early days, I, I did quite a bit of work for Henry Moore. And I 
found him to be one of the most businesslike people I, I've, I've ever known. He, he, he knew all about his own sculpture. It was all very well catalogued. He knew how to present himself. Uh, he knew how to get his name around, all that sort of thing, which actually people don't realize. But, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're selling things for a great deal of money, and therefore you have to project yourself in the right way. Yeah. So there's as an would you say an equal amount of effort to be put in to the business and the promotional side as there is to the creation, or is there a different split? I I, I think you've got to be a hundred percent sculptor, but you've also got to be uh, reasonably savvy business-wise, and um, uh, but it can't take it away from the the amount of effort you put into the sculpture. Yeah. So I suppose you have to be 150 <laughs> percent. It's <laughs> not asking people. a lot. I mean, really. No. Well, I mean, people aren't going to beat a path to your door. Uh, that's the point. Um, so you, you have to you have to make up for that. Yeah. But I mean, the thing is that, you know, if you're in love with doing sculpture, it's not a problem. Um, you really have to be enthusiastic about it. And if anyone comes to me and says, I'm thinking of doing sculpture, uh, but if, you know, I, I can't get into so-and-so art school, I'm going to do, um, you know, weaving or something like that. I say, well, you know, don't go in for sculpture because unless you're so passionate about it, unless you can't think of doing anything else, it's not for you because it'll be hard work. Um, and, uh, you know, the, your, your, your path will not be easy to begin with. But how can they possibly not want to just do sculpture? <laughs> That's what I'm always amazed at. I, I get quite well, a lot of yeah. apprentice, uh, it's not apprentice, sort of work experience kids. And I'm always yes. astonished that some are quite disengaged. Some are not yes. enthusiastic <laughs> about what we're doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, truth is that they probably won't make it. Yeah. Because uh, I think enthusiasm is everything. Enthusiasm gives you the ability to work hard and consistently. Yeah. I think some of them, to be fair to them, some of them do come from backgrounds that probably have nev never had uh, a door opened into the art world. And so no. maybe that's why their schools have asked us to take them. Um, but, I, but I always think that as soon as they lay eyes on so something of something fantastic we're working on, I always expect them to be uh, fall madly in love with it. And, and not all of yes. them do, which no. <laughs> I no. suppose that's the world. <laughs> And um, I know that you've got a smashing new book, um, which is on my Christmas list. I've asked my husband to, <laughs> to, to email the studio for a yes. copy. Um, I'm not sure he's done it yet, but I um, saw that was on your website. Yes. And where else can people find out more about you? Well, I mean, if you put in Philip Jackson sculpture in the, uh, in the web, it comes up with pages of stuff. There's this new book, which you can get from Amazon or I suppose a lot of bookshops in in this locality are you on instagram or do that have you yes I, I am social on media? instagram i don't actually do it myself but uh, someone is doing it yes i'm on instagram okay um, so they can just so look you up in can. there have ha, enjoy all your your lovely pieces yes <laughs> Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. No, I'm not really thrilled to um, have had the chance. So keep working, please, <laughs> very hard. <laughs> We're all waiting for the next sculpture. Well, good luck with your project anyway. Thank you. Now, is it just me or are sculptors just the nicest people in the world? <laughs> Philip Jackson's ideas and creative hands really have brought something to the world of sculpture 
His work suggests that he's something above the common man. And yet, perhaps more than anything else, I was struck in this interview by his humility and his gratitude. He's a gentleman among men. Now, the first thing I'd like to draw out of our discussion, perhaps because I've been homeschooling three hooligans during the pandemic and my constant cries of read a book is so often echoing around our house, I just loved the fact that he found sculpture through reading. Now, with an elderly relative looking after him and unable to provide the kind of entertainments that maybe a young boy might want, he was bored and looked to pictures of Greco-Roman sculpture to entertain his mind. And that was the first seed of his interest in sculpture. He also said something that made me laugh about when he was studying art. He said, with sculpture, you seem to climb a ladder and then people just fell off at the top. And of course, what he meant is that people didn't often become sculptors when he looked around at what people were doing. And though he'd studied this, he wanted that path. He planned to be a sculptor and he didn't quite know how to get on that path right away, which is why he was drawn to photography. But the idea that we can climb a ladder but not know what happens once we get to the top is really a funny one but I think he brilliantly encapsulated what being a creative is all about in that comment. Most of us are taking the next rung of the ladder and hoping that there'll be another one to put our foot on after that but we're not always sure and if you're going to be a creative and a creative in business, not just necessarily a hobby, you have to have that head for risk or maybe a good head for heights or maybe you're in denial. You just don't look down. But if you aren't able to cope with that, I think your chances of falling are much higher. Now, Philip clearly is a man that puts the hours in very professional indeed from the sound of him, but he said something which I've observed myself, which is he can work consistently and fast. And I really believe that that combination is what makes you a professional. As a conservator, I can work consistently for many hours and at a decent pace. As a writer, however, I'm consistent, but my pace is my weak point. I'm quite slow in my writing. And until I can level that up, I don't think I'll ever quite achieve the success that I have as a conservator. Not that it can't be improved, of course. That's all, we always have to have something to work on. But I'm aware that the one without the other will not yield the highest level of result. So... That's a wrap. Sculpture Vulture season one comes to a close. Now, COVID notwithstanding, I hope to be back here for another season later in the year. If you'd like to be notified of when the season's going to start again, do sign up to my mailing list, which you'll find on my website, www.sculpturevulture.co.uk. If you're looking for a new book, please consider one of my novels about the dark side of the art world, where sculpture is always at the heart of the story. You can get them on the show website, on the usual online retailers, or even better, keep your local library alive, ask for them in there. Thank you for joining me today.
Sculpture Vulture has been brought to you by Antique Bonds.